Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Colossians 1, 1-14 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you heard it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you, uh, Darden and the Kaler Family Singers, which I always really, really enjoy. Um, By the way, that was, is, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. We're going to be starting a new sermon series in the book of Colossians, uh, and I always uh, enjoy these vision uh, sermons of looking out of what the, th- the things we're going to cover and how we're going to address stuff and what this is going to look like. And, um, and, I, and I love the opportunity to kind of uh, dive in deeper, especially when le- with letters of Paul, of why, we're, why was this letter written? What's going on in this time? And so I want to start this morning uh, in really this entire sermon series uh, as we look at really the, the title of the sermon series, The People of God. What is it to be the people of God? Uh, and I want to ask you a question for you to think about. Uh, so it's rhetorical. This, this means uh, don't shout out an answer. Uh, you can whisper an answer. You can turn to your neighbor and say, this is what I think. And that's totally fine. I'm cool with that. Um, but I want, you, I want you to think about this. I want this to kind of like, and to go below the surface. There's, there's some obvious answers, but there's also some deeper answers uh, when you think about this. Um, in your initial thoughts, what comes to mind when I ask this question? What is... St. Louis, known for? What are the stories of our city? 
What are we known for? Um, there's a lot of answers to that. There's a ton of stories about St. Louis, good and bad. Um, there's 11 stories that I love very much that bore a title to our beloved Cardinals. There's one beautiful story from a couple years ago. But there's other stories about St. Louis for sure to be told. Some stories are prominent. Some stories are less heard. The, the story and the history of St. Louis is complex at least. This is a city that was established, if you know the roots of St. Louis, this was, for, for Western purposes, uh, I've been reading through a book lately on the history of St. Louis and some of the troubling history, and, and it starts with Cahokia Mounds. And I was like, okay, we're going back a little further than I thought. Uh, but for, for in, in the Western world, St. Louis was kind of a second start type of city. It was, it was for predominantly white settlers from the East Coast uh, that for one reason or another didn't make it there and came to St. Louis for a land grab. It was, an, it was a second opportunity. Fur trading was a huge, uh, a huge thing that began to take off in, in St. Louis. And there's actually some interesting history as, as to uh, the, the battle between steamboats and river and, and the railroad on how Chicago bypassed St. Louis. St. Louis should have been the prominent transportation hub of the Midwest, uh, but Illinois made some bad business dealings or maybe some, maybe some strategic business dealings with the Wiggins Steamboat Company on the other side, on the Illinois side. All right, I wasn't going to go into this, but they basically, they set up a mile for the, for the ferry crossing uh, downtown St. Louis. There was a mile strip of land that only this, the Wiggins Company could operate the ferry boat. And this is in the 1840s. Uh, and then they declared two miles. You couldn't operate within two miles. No competing businesses within two miles. That's a huge strip of land right there that you couldn't get across the river. And followers of Jesus and the church, a church being for the city, ought, uh, at one point in time, Kinlock was, they had business, and it was a thriving, small community. Some of the issues they faced were transportation. There's a famous story. Uh, Jane Gluley tells this in, where the, in the film where the pavement ends about the transportation issues. There was only one road that would, went from Kinlock into neighboring Ferguson, and there were times in history where that road, a large concrete block was put up in the middle of that road so that you actually couldn't drive over it. Like we do today, you had to go out and around to the highway to get to neighboring businesses and neighboring communities. And in fact, where there were no natural boundaries, there were large, and, and, I, and I would imagine it's not still the case today, but there, are, there were large uh, barriers of thorn bushes grown uh, along the boundaries there. And yet, the city thrived. Now, what was interesting, what led to, what began to lead to the downfall of Kinlock, here again, this is, history is complex. It's not pretty, but it's complex. What began to lead to the downfall of Kinlock was actually desegregation. Now, it wasn't just desegregation. When desegregation started to hit, uh, home loans and remodeling loans weren't available for many black citizens. And even in the, when the federal government struck down the state's rights to discriminate in 1948, there were still realtors and still lenders that practiced discrimination by what was called redlining in neighborhoods that you would not give 
home improvement loans too, and so the buildings were kind of left to decay. You didn't have a lot of opportunity. And of course, people in that community that could afford to live, to, could afford to move out, would take advantage of that because they could see the writing on the wall. This wasn't going to be a community that was improved and made better. And then you add to that uh, the expansion of Highway 70 in 19, was it 1956? Uh, and then in the late 70s, uh, and that was eminent domain. Eminent domain almost always affects poorer communities. Um, and then in 1977, our beloved uh, uh, Lambert Field expanded and really kind of took what was left of the land available in Kinloch. And... Um, the buildings decayed, the schools closed, the brush, the forest, the weeds grew bigger and bigger. And Kinloch today almost, uh, there's large portions of Kinloch that was once a thriving city that now almost seems like a barren wasteland. And we might think, well, that's just progress. That's just part of it. Who cares? It's just land. So as we begin this view into a city, do we have a sense in our world, this is a challenge that I, this is a challenge that I face, uh, that I'm trying to wrestle with, do we have a sense of place and community? Do we look at a sense of city and place uh, and value that in, in our, do we simply look at our individual plots and our home values or are we able to kind of say this is what it means to be part of a people and part of a place and part of a community? And so this land, our city, it's part of our city, has a beautiful and tragic history. And I just thought as we go on into the city of Colossae and looking at the history there, uh, that it would be good to begin to look into the story of our own city. That this wasn't always the way. There's progress in some ways, but there's also a tragic history there. Uh, and there are many stories like this, like the story of, of uh, Kinloch throughout St. Louis, um, the Ville, and North St. Louis, all were, were once thriving cities. In fact, you may not know this, right on Fontbon Avenue, there was actually a thriving black community in the middle of downtown Clayton that got bought out, displaced, and moved. Uh, so that downtown Clayton could, could grow. And of course now you've got million dollar homes that are being bought out and moved so that they can tear down one condominium set and put up a nicer condominium set in Clayton. So, but, it, but it's a complex history. Why do I tell that? Well, Jeremiah, when God's people are displaced, when they're taken into exile in Babylon, uh, they were told to seek the peace and prosperity of that city, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, and I don't think that command is ever removed from the people of God to seek the peace and prosperity of the city as followers of Jesus even to continue to be the missionary. We just got done looking at this whole uh, history of God's people that he, they were placed in, in a place and in a time to bear the image of Jesus to the world around them and now, or to bear the image of God in the world around them and now as the people of Jesus, that mission is still the same. And as we look at what does it mean to be the people of God, we are not simply here to be separate. We're not simply here 
uh, to be an example, though we are here to be an example. We are here, I believe, the command still stands, to seek the peace and prosperity uh, of the city, as Jeremiah 29.7 tells us. For in its welfare, we will find our welfare. And I wonder, something. every time I go into one of the letters of Paul, one of the questions I always ask, if we were to look at the history of the church in America, if we were to look at the, the history of the, the church was a central part of, uh, of the black community, especially throughout uh, history, um, there is a beautiful church that was, only, that was torn down a few years ago that used to sit right across from Pruitt-Igo, another dark uh, plot, plight on the history of St. Louis uh, that was a meeting spot and a spot of hope uh, and light for a very long time. Um, but if, if, if Paul were to write a letter to the church in America today, if Paul were to write a letter to the church of St. Charles today, what would he say? What encouragement would he give? What blind spots would he bring up? What, how would he address it? Do we need to see a corrective call for the gospel? Do we need to hear an encouragement against our uh, idolatries and our shame? It's always interesting to think about what Paul may write to us. So this week, we're going to start a new series in the letter to the Colossian church. And this is another city with a complicated history. Um, it's a group of followers of Jesus that Paul is going to encourage as they, as they begin to live among their city as the people of God. Colossae was also a once thriving city that had seen its heyday by the time that Paul was writing to them. Uh, and so in being a popular city, it was among the transportation hub on the Lycus River, and uh, they did a whole lot of export. They did a lot of, their, their main export was uh, a deep purple uh, cloth or linen. Purple was very, very valuable back then, which is weird to think about. Color was valuable. Um, uh, but but uh, that was their main export. But that had been a while. So a lot of people had moved to Colossae and had inhabited there, but the, church, but the, but the city itself had seen better days. Uh, most people had gone up the river. Competing uh, ports from Laodicea uh, took a lot of the business out of Colossae. And then, of course, the major metropolitan area to the north and side uh, was uh, Ephesus. Now, Paul had never been to Colossae. Paul had been to Ephesus, and he spent time in Ephesus, uh, and probably what took place is Epaphras, or I've been listening to people this week that pronounce it Epaphras, Epaphras and I'm like, we're doing Epaphras. Um, chance are good, he's not going to get mad at us. Uh, so we're going to pronounce it how we want. Um, but Epaphras was from Colossae, and he was probably visiting in Ephesus when Paul was there and was teaching, and he was probably discipled by Paul. He took the message of hope of, of Jesus from Ephesus, from Paul, and traveled back home to Colossae and began to share and began to disciple these people. And from uh, Epaphras, this church begins to take root. Uh, and Paul is thrilled. He's greatly encouraged, by the way, in the city of Colossae. Now, Colossae is, again, it's a complex city. It's a makeup of, of a few different type of people here. And the gospel has impacted the diversity of people in the city of Colossae. And we see this by the letter that Paul has written addressing different areas and maybe some of the different false teachings, some of the different temptations that they're facing. But also what I find is interesting is 
this church, the, the followers of Jesus in Colossae, you're probably looking at um, 10, more, more than likely around, around 10, maybe to a max of like 20 households. Isn't that crazy? This is the church of the city of Colossae. And more than likely, there's some false teaching that's going on at this point. There's some debate over when Paul wrote this letter. Did he write it when the church was brand new and it was just getting going? And this was kind of a, a, an encouragement but also a warning of the temptations that may be to come? Or was there false teaching happening? And, and this is 12 to 15 years after the church had started in Colossae. Uh, and, uh, and is he writing to them uh, in, while this false teaching is happening? That's, to me, that's the more likely scenario. Uh, and um, he's writing to kind of reaffirm their call to Jesus and battle some of this, um, uh, some of the false teaching that was going on. And this is what's crazy about some of these letters. We, we don't have the questions. Uh, Epaphras came to visit Paul in prison, and we don't know the questions that he told him. We don't know that, what he said about what was going on in the church. We don't have the questions that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. We have half of the dialogue. But what we do have is sufficient, that God gives a sufficient guidance on how we are to be as the people of God. And Paul is going to give us sufficient guidance that he gave to them that we can see so we can understand the struggle and watch for the same pitfalls in our own day. I want to give some cultural context to the backgrounds of the different types of people that were in Colossae um, so that we'll have it with us. We'll have this background of the different uh, religious beliefs uh, as, uh, as our elders guide us through the book of Colossians over the summer uh, and so that we know who it is that Paul is talking to. I grew up with a view of the Bible that when you start talking about context, you looked only at literary context. And this is like my worst nightmare. Uh, and so somebody would say, to understand the Bible, you take a sentence, and then like they would start diagramming the sentence and put an underline under this noun modifies this verb, and this is the adjective, and it's the present perfect tense of this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, do we have to know English comp to know Jesus? Because I, that's a temptation for me to, to drop out. Listen. Literary context, I believe, is very important, and it's important to understand what it is in the context of a paragraph and in a sentence and what these letters... But, but something that I have grown to value a whole lot more is historical context. The Bible was written to a people in a place and time, encountering false teachings, encountering challenges, and, and these letters, which are applicable to our life today... Certainly, but they were written to a people in a time and in a place. And to really know what the application is to our lives, then we begin to, we want to begin to understand what was going on in this city that Paul was writing to these people to encourage and affirm them. And then we can start looking and say, what do we have in common with these people? Because there are commonalities that are, that are common under the sun that we can understand. And then from that we go, okay, this is what I need to hear about God. What is he writing to them that they needed to hear and know and learn and understand about God? What do we have in common with them? And then from that, what do I need to hear about God? And the Holy Spirit is at work in all of these 
things. And so what Paul writes is sufficient if we know the history or not, but when we read it in context, which is why I'll tell you, uh, I've got a different assignment for you, but throughout the summer, this is, my, this is my encouragement to you, read through Colossians in one sitting. And if you're daring, read it out loud, okay? And don't read it like your Charlton Heston, you know, in this big dramatic hallmark reading. Read it like an actual human wrote this letter to actual humans. Give it emphasis. Read it out loud. Hear what Paul is saying in its totality. Paul risked, Paul risked his life every time he walked into a city. Paul was in prison all the time, it seems like. Uh, he was imprisoned by the Romans. Um, in fact, uh, when he walked in, I, I, the, the story I was going to tell, my friend and I went to a Chiefs game one time. Uh, this was several years ago, back when St. Louis, before St. Louis had a football team. And we went to a, uh, before we had our second football team. And we went to a Chiefs game in Kansas City. Well, I was a diehard Broncos fan growing up. And so we went to a Chiefs-Broncos game. And you better believe I wore my Stephen HQ Atwater jersey to that. He's a safety for the Broncos. Uh, at, in the middle of uh, Arrowhead Stadium, and I wore it proudly. This is dangerous. Okay? Every time Paul walked into a city, he was taking his life in his own hands. You may think, oh, you just, I mean, you just go and you tell people about Jesus. How is that hard? It's not hard in our context. It's hard for other reasons and shame and, and, and guilt and all that kind of stuff. But you, he literally would take his life in his own hands. Um, when Paul came to Ephesus, Paul would preach the gospel as people believed. Uh, not only did religious leaders lose some power and influence, but it was bad for business. Silversmiths were making uh, statues of Artemis or Diana uh, in the Roman world, and when people started converting to Jesus, that was bad for business for the silversmiths. It caused a riot. They turned people against Paul. Paul was imprisoned by the Romans. He was imprisoned by the Jews. He was imprisoned. He was sought after be, to be arrested by the Jews. He was probably imprisoned by the mystic religions at some point in time. It, it was... He took his life in his hands. And so it's important that we understand what Paul wanted to make known. Paul would spend time in these cities and get to know them. What did Paul, what did God through Paul want to make known to these people that he wrote these letters to, and especially here to the city of uh, Colossae? And how did it change them? What was the struggle they were facing? What did they need to hear and understand uh, about God? And what were the implications of that? For the city of Colossae, there were three primary religious backgrounds that would have been present here. The first thing you had was you would have these, these pagan uh, mystic religions. Uh, and the primary mode of these mystic religions was experientialism, for lack of a better word. Uh, they were highly... Uh, they would have these rituals that got a, a little bit crazy and um, in different ways. Um, and that dominated a lot of the rural towns. Then you had Greek philosophy. Rome didn't have a particular religion necessarily except for emperor worship. Uh, <clears throat> but, it all, but it did have a lot of Greek philosophy, which was self-improvement. Um, and then you also had some Jews that had migrated there. <clears throat> which is, of course, then the battle of the law. 
And when Epaphras brought the good news of Jesus that he had learned from Paul in Ephesus, when he brought it back to Colossae, people from all of these different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, believed. And so this church was filled with these different backgrounds, these different spheres of life and belief who had heard the good news of Jesus turned from their previous beliefs and their previous devotion to the kingdom of Jesus and embraced him for forgiveness, to be redeemed, to be made new, from enmity with one another to love one another. And it was the grace of Jesus that transferred them, as Paul writes, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son in Jesus. Turned them from enmity at least toward one another, maybe indifference to unity and love, to caring about each other. And that's a big deal. You need to know that at its core, the gospel of Jesus is incredibly diverse. It is good news to the pagan religion. It is good news to the law follower. It is good news to, um, to the, the intellectualist, the philosopher. The gospel of Jesus brought and still brings every tribe and tongue together. And ancient cultures had various ways of assimilating different nations that they would conquer. For the Romans especially, as long as you worshiped the emperor, they didn't care what religion you followed. As long as you paid taxes uh, and worshiped the emperor. Uh, participated in the feasts and festivals. And, and, and honestly, uh, when you look at history, it's, it's fascinating. That was actually a pretty glorious problem that the Romans had with, with the Jews who refused to bow down to the emperor. And there, there was a little bit of tension there um, for a very long time. It was a great frustration. The gospel of Jesus wasn't about the uniformity of cultures or an assimilation to a certain way of doing things. It was about a transformation of worship and motive. Even today, what you need to know is if, you, if we look around and we, we say Christianity isn't very diverse, Christianity is actually the most diverse organization, religion, whatever you want to say, in history. In all of history. In the entire planet. From every tribe and tongue. If we can, if we can and this is for all sides, to get past the idea that the American church is, is not the only existence. And so the beauty of the Colossian church was that these various backgrounds who have put their faith in Jesus have now come together. And Paul rejoices and affirms and encourages this young church to continue to press on and grow in knowledge and faith and bearing good fruit because they've been delivered. They have been saved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So I want, to, I want to finish with this. I want to give you some of the, a little bit more of the characteristics of these different types of religions so we may look at not only what we may have in common with them, but what their temptations were and how Paul is going to address them uh, in this letter. Because Paul is, is kind of hitting everybody here with either a warning of be careful that this philosophy may come out or this is what's being taught and I'm here to tell you it's not true. For the mystical religions, again, everything was about an existential experience supernatural experience. Now, this had a lot to do with, uh, again, different rituals and performances. Many of them were erotic in nature, uh, and some probably even were aided by different forms of plant life. 
um, where you would sort of have a divine out-of-body experience. A couple years ago, we went through the book of Colossians, and if you remember, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Corinthians, and if you remember, that was a big problem in the church of Corinth, that even the Sunday morning gatherings, that was about this out-of-body experience. And a lot of the mystical aspects of following Jesus, speaking in tongues and prophecies and all that kind of stuff, were, were valued super highly like that. And that alone is a truly divine encounter with God. The rest of this stuff is just whatever. And so for the mystery religions, that's a, that's a big deal. And certainly throughout Scripture, there are some radical encounters with God. I mean, Paul himself, in his conversion, has a pretty radical encounter with Jesus. He's blinded. He's uh, blinded by Jesus with a bright light and, and hears him and bows down immediately. It was a supernatural encounter, but it wasn't, he didn't lose consciousness. It wasn't some kind of out-of-body alternate state. Um, in these pagan religions, this was mostly about seeking out uh, a, uh, a divine pleasure, an emotional high, an existential encounter with this power of, of the experience. In our day, for the most part, we have taken the religious aspect out of it, uh, but we still, many of us, or many at least in our culture, pursue this out-of-body experience, this transcendental, uh, this end-all, be-all. I have to have this. this emotional or physical high. Whether it's supernatural experience of God, an earthly encounter that we say, I have to have, uh, the power of an experience can be a daunting call. It can be an a potential distraction or even become an outright object of worship. So, for some of us, this is something we have in common with some of the people in Colossae. Another representation in Colossae was Greek philosophy, knowledge, this is more the pursuit of a better life. So we talked about this uh, again with Corinth. Uh, traveling speakers would come to town, Greek philosophers, and they would come and they would preach this new kind of silver bullet. If you do this and believe this and practice this, this is the answer to happiness. This is the answer to fulfillment. This is the way to find the way. Uh, some of that even carried through with... Um, politics and different policies like that. And so if you had this hidden knowledge with these speakers that would come through, this was a way of them making a living. So for the low price of $19.99, buy my books and tapes. Uh, and um, tapes is not a, buy my downloads. Uh, and uh, you too could be on a quest for the good life. Again, this wasn't necessarily attached to a specific religion, but it was, but it was towards self-elevation and self-fulfillment a chasing after money, wealth, and knowledge. This is the, these are the Tony Robbinses of the ancient world. Okay? And certainly when we look at Scripture, we see that wisdom and knowledge are not things to be despised. The one who uh, established the mountains and who told the seas, you go here and no further. We see wisdom all throughout Scriptures, but... But this would be more like areas of self-elevation, not Christ our wisdom. Self-improvement techniques focused on you, focused on having a better life. Uh, some of this also took the form of different politics and 
policies, uh, the philosophies that affect how do we govern the world in our day. And um, this probably uh, affects us more than we know in the way that we even view Christianity. This was simply a part of, uh, this was also a part of the Colossian church because it's it, in Greek philosophy, it's what they knew. And so if they're not careful, they would absorb the gospel of Jesus into Greek philosophy versus uh, the gospel of Jesus avoid, uh, absorbing Greek philosophy and, and uh, shaping uh, being above and beyond that. And we probably do that a lot in our own day. We would tend to either idolize uh, personal responsibility um, or an idyllic system that will somehow fix everything. In both ways, our temptations to alleviate our need to, to be with and care for and about the poor and the oppressed and the outsider. Um, and so we see that at work in our day. I'm just going to leave that there. Uh, this self-elevation, self-improvement. And then the third area, so you have, you have the, the pagan religions, which are all about the experience. You have the uh, philosophy, which is all about the mind and learning. And then the last one you have is you have Jews that have migrated to the area. Uh, and the lifelong struggle there, especially as it retains uh, in a vast majority, uh, it, the commonality that we have in the vast majority of the Christian world is issues in regards to the law, right? Behavior. So not just the experience and not just mental ascent and self-improvement, but also these ideas of behaviors. And it's not necessarily about following the legal laws, but more following the spiritual laws and jockeying for position and what makes you more righteous and what makes you better, who follows the rules better and who doesn't. Uh, and then if you don't follow the rules as good, how do you make up a new rule that you're following by not following the rules? Um, and... Uh, this has long been a problem for the right, and it, it's buried a little bit, but it's also a problem for the left. You have legalism and you have dogmatic tones on the left, and if you want to see a good example of that, you can look, honestly, no further than the last year that we've been in and your measure of righteousness by how many of the pandemic rules that you follow uh, or your measure of freedom by how many you don't follow. And then we put that into righteousness terms. This is a prevalent struggle. The good news is it's a prevalent struggle throughout Christians in the most of the world. I have a friend who's, who is a, uh, he's from England. He's a missionary, and he was talking about doing some mission work in Europe, and he was working with German and French Christians, and the, the, the German Christians were aghast at the type of language that many of the French uh, Christians used, and then the French Christians were a bit put off by how much the German Christians drank, and uh, there was a little bit of conflict between them because both had laws that were elevated to the position of righteousness. And so this is, uh, these are potentials for landmines. Um, and it's easy to see, uh, it's easy to see the flaws in others. It's easy to miss our own struggles. But what Paul's going to reiterate in Colossians is that we are not only saved by grace, but we also walk by grace. Tradition can be helpful, but it can be a big hindrance. And so here's what's beautiful is that the people from every one of these different types of spectrums heard the gospel, responded to the grace of Jesus, and has been transformed to walk in the new kingdom of God's beloved son. And whatever false teaching was going on was to take these histories, to take these preferences, to take these traditions, uh, these old kingdom motivations, 
and exploit them toward division. It's exploit them toward maybe retreating back to that or finding their way to make uh, them appear better or be better. So Paul reminds them right off the bat here in Colossians 1 that their new identity is in Christ, that they are a kingdom people, that it was his kingdom of grace it was the kingdom, it was the grace of Jesus that so proudly, profoundly shaped these young followers and transformed their hearts. And before these false teachers begin to have any sway, Paul wants to continue to affirm them. And this is the beauty of the church. This is what happens when the gospel begins to impact these people in Colossae and the church universal in the, in the New Testament. It turned... From the pagan religions, people pursuing self, uh, I'm sorry, from Greek philosophy, from pursuing self-improvement and personal happiness to start radically caring for the poor and the outsider, the widows and the orphans. It was the kingdom of Jesus that implemented an astoundingly new sex ethic when it came from simply experience uh, to be sought out and even worshipped to profoundly changing that, the practice among the church is a gift given in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. In our culture, we tend to get offended potentially between the idea of a man and a woman. In this culture, in Colossae, it may have been, the offensive word may have been one. One man and one woman. What arose in the church, even among the former pagans, was a defined commitment to fidelity and a vocation of celibacy. And it was the kingdom of Jesus that turned the law and behaviors that brought either pride on the good days or shame on the bad days into a selfless, deep, giving sense of grace and care for the other. That in this kingdom, it's not about comparing your righteousness to those of others. It's about demonstrating immeasurable grace and mercy on those who are better or worse in you in the, than you in those former terms. So, let me give you a brief glimpse then of how we're going to go through the book of Colossians, that we are a, the people of God, and what does it mean to be the people of God? So we're going to look over what it means to be a kingdom people, a people whose hope is in Christ, who have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're going to look at what it means to be a redeemed people. A people who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. What does it mean that we are a confessing people? To be reminded often that we're not only saved by grace, but we also walk by grace. A constant humbling but also empowering reminder that our value and worth can be found in Christ alone in his death, burial, and resurrection. Expressing God's infinite love for his people. That we are an image-bearing people. That we have been raised to walk. We read earlier, being raised to walk in the newness of life. In Colossians chapter 3. Continuing to be conformed to the image of Jesus, our resurrected Savior. And not just in areas of belief, but in thought and in practice, in compassion and care, in justice and righteousness. And that we are a proclaiming people in word and deed, submitting to one another, loving, 
giving up for one another, committed to justice and righteousness, walking in wisdom, making the best use of the time we have. It is the love of Jesus that frees us from the love of self and compels us to see the peace, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Um, so, the spiritual practices that we often take on over the summer are the communal practices, the one another's of the New Testament. How do we one another one another? And as we look at being the people of God, and as we walk through the, 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 book, uh, the letter to the Colossian church, that's going to be our emphasis for this summer. How do we one another one another? And so here's my uh, assignment for you, for not only for this week, but for the summer. First, read through Colossians. Read through it a lot. Become an expert in Colossians. That will not be a waste of your time. But let me give you something else. Paul is writing to encourage and affirm uh, this church and their identity. I'm going to give you something very practical to do. Okay? I want you to uh, write down, and you can take some time and do some research on this, 10 people at refuge. 10 people that you see or you have seen. They're in your small group. You see them at church on Sundays. You may not even know their name, but you see them every once in a while. And write down a description. And I want you to be creative over the summer. How can I encourage them? How can I affirm them in their identity in Christ? How can I value and see the things that they do, large or small? You can make some of that, some of them people that are up here in front, because certainly people that are up in front need encouragement, but don't, not exclusively. Um, go to the back. People that are older, people that are younger. Kids that show up every week with their parents, and sometimes because they have to. Well, probably every time because they have to. But, um, and, and, and maybe write a note or bring them a sticker. Write down a list of 10-ish people and take the summer and go out of your way to uniquely and intentionally encourage them. Show them their value and worth. Say the things that you appreciate about them. It could be showing up or it could be serving or it could be, hey, I just, you smile when you're here. Hey, you don't smile when you're here, but you still come. And I want you to know that I've seen that. Let that be an encouragement to you that we develop a sense of space, a sense of community. As Jesus seeks to shape us and build us as the people of God, that we would understand it's not just my spirituality that's, that is taking place here. I participate. I am part of a people. Jesus shapes me and calls me to not only grow in my own walk with him, but also to encourage and affirm others as they do that. Okay? Everybody got that? And we're going to take the summer and walk through this really, really good short book that Paul writes, encouraging the church in Colossae to be the people of God. So let's pray. Thank you, Jesus that you have established your church, your bride. Um, one of the comforts that I find often in these letters is that the New Testament church was often just as messed up as the current day church. Uh, your love is long-suffering and patient. You do not, will not ever give up on your people, and yet we're also called to be encouraged and affirmed, but also to have soft hearts 
we will need corrective. We will need rebuke. We will need to address our blind spots. That's part of it. But that's not to our shame. That's to your glory. And so lift us up and build up your bride here. Give us hearts and eyes and ears to hear, eyes to see, soft hearts to receive both your encouragement and affirmation to believe that you do love us as your people, but also your commission that we are put in a place in a city to bear your image faithfully and joyfully in word and in deed to the world around us. Thank you for loving your bride. May we be humbled uh, and yet have a renewed sense of confidence because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.